welcome to episode 28 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. Today inside the Roleplay Studio I've got Clint Johnson, a friend of mine and somebody who I roleplay with regularly. First one of, uh, I hope, three or perhaps four guests who uh, know a little bit more about me as a roleplayer than perhaps any of the others that I've interviewed so far. So... Hi, Clint. How's it going? Uh, pretty good. It's the first time in the uh, home studio. <laughs> yeah. no, it, is the first, it is the first time in the home studio. You get no beat-up uh, poker table or anything like that? No. Just, the... Just a quality uh, yeah. table from, from Ikea. Kia, yeah. Beautiful uh, faux uh, veneer of some kind on there. I don't want to get into that uh, too much. I don't want people to think about robbing my place because I've got such valuable <laughs> things to... Uh, nice things around. So, um, how long have you been a role player? Um, I think about six years now. Uh, I'm trying to think of the exact time when I started role playing with you guys. Uh, maybe it was the second year of, of Nate. I'm not really sure. I've been yeah, trying to something like call that, that, something like that. Yeah. But uh, one of the other guys, another guy named Dan, so that kind of makes it a little confusing sometimes. It does, yes. Um, we've talked about him changing his name maybe or something like that. I think I that's know. a good idea. Yeah. I think I'm the original Daniel as I'm the older of the two. So. Okay. We'll see. Uh, we'll talk to him and see yeah. how that goes. Um, yeah, he, he's, he's very pliable, isn't he? He's very agreeable yeah. sort of a chap. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, we used to play a lot of uh, board games, Risk, uh, Diplomacy, Axis and Allies. Right. Um, and then he just asked one day if I was interested in role-playing, and I was like, sure, I'll try it. So the first game we played was actually... Um, I don't know what system he uses. I think it's kind of a White Wolf variant or something. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think so. Um, it was something of his own device, for sure. Yeah, it was just stuck in concrete. It was kind of a post-apocalyptic... Uh, wilderness kind of campaign stuck in a small town. It's a town called Concrete rather than all of us stuck inside Concrete. Yeah, yeah. That would have been a, a very uh, uneventful game, I think. It's true. Um, but yeah, I was stuck in set in Concrete, Washington, I think. Right. And uh, we just played, I think I was a Navy, an ex-Navy SEAL doctor or something like that. Right. Yeah, I don't recall the specifics of it. but uh... And we all started turning into animals or something like that. That's right, yeah. That was yeah. the main uh, main gist of that campaign. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if we were uh, finished with that, yes, but there was uh, certainly some yeah. strange transformations going on. So um, well, that kind of uh, answers most of the uh, the first questions. But um, what? So we started playing, uh, well, at least when you started playing, we were playing that sort of variant. Then what else, what do we play after that, I think? I think actually you ran the campaign, it was like a... The Masks of the Carlisle Expedition. Right. Yeah. 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 Masks okay. of Nyarlathotep is oh. the uh, is the actual uh, is the actual name, but I, I changed. We never it we never time. actually finished that one because that's you, right. You 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 build it as a campaign where we could be superheroes, yes. and then we played maybe for three or four months, and we never got to super. And then uh, we never got was as long as that. Superpowers. I don't remember. I don't remember. And it that long, Sanford but. kept complaining about oh, there's <laughs> playing a superhero campaign with the superpowers. That's right. And so I think you got mad and kind of like nope. We're not getting yeah. this anymore. <laughs> no, you were just got up to the bit where everybody was going to have their uh, their, their superpowers, and then the, then the complaining got to be too much. So, so I, I do remember the uh, when we had to start making the sanity rolls. Yes, because there was the mass of tentacles or whatever. That's in right. The, yeah, in the main. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, hiding yeah. area or whatever it was. Of, yeah. of the villains. Right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then, so other than other than that, what actual system? Because that was um, that was Chaosium uh, system there for. Uh, Call of Cthulhu, um, but and what else did we play? Did we we played? We actually played. The only system I think we've actually played is maybe Mouse Guard. I remember yes, Stanford yeah, that's a right. Couple campaigns yeah, of Mouse yeah, Guard. Yeah. that was pretty fun. Yeah, um, most of the good campaigns or most of the games we've actually played have been just kind of our own kind of house rules kind right. of thing. Yep, for sure. Um, when you started playing, or when you started writing Victoria, we were kind of the 
the first one of the yeah. first playtests. Yeah, well, you were you were not you weren't kind of you were actually the first uh, the first playtesters. I played did some uh, playtesting of my own with some people in, uh, in New Zealand as well. But yeah, you're the guys the first ones that uh, that yeah. took that took a run at it. So um, yeah, then uh, I know Dan the other Dan usually has his White Wolf kind of variant mm, system, and we've mm. done that for. Th- Three or four campaigns. Yeah, yeah. Um, I usually, when I do GM, I've been using GURPS most of the time. Right. It's the really rules light version. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Ryan Macklin, who uh, whose episode may or may not precede this one, he was talking about uh, about how he played a lot of GURPS at the start, and then he discovered that if you played White Wolf, you could get girls. But um, I'm not uh, I'm not sure about that. I guess uh, I guess we could put it to the test. We could start playing some White Wolf Clinton <laughs> and see if we can get you hooked up there. Um, so. Stranger Things have happened. <laughs> That's right. So, what's your favourite book or supplement, other than uh, Victoria, of course? You know, something that you don't necessarily play, but something you just really enjoyed reading or looking at the pictures in or something you just like going back to? Um, I don't know. The one most useful book I've I've read is, I think it's called Ultimate Toolbox. Right. Uh, I think the publisher is AEG. I'm not sure. Right, yeah. Um, and it's just a book of, of tables with, like, 20 different... Uh, 20 different entries and you just right. roll the dice and you pick and they have backgrounds of random characters um, what's in your pockets uh, what's in this dungeon right. what kind of government this town has sure. and it's just really it's really really useful um, as far as systems or anything like that the one I really find useful or the one I really like now I guess would be Birthright it's an old Dungeons and Dragons maybe from right. the early 90s I've never right. actually played it but I've collected Maybe about six or seven of the books. Right, sure. And, uh, yeah, it's really useful for ideas for the kind of uh, campaign I want to put together next. Right, so. sure. So is there anything in particular that you've read and you thought, you know what, I'd like to cause that to, to cease to exist? It doesn't necessarily have to be something you think is badly written, but just something about it's rubbed up the wrong way. The only thing I can think of of what I've read, um, there was a supplement or another book for the GURP series called uh, GURP's Goblins. All right. <laughs> and when I bought it, it was sealed up and I couldn't read it. So right. I thought, okay, this is like kind of a, you know, like a kind of a fantasy idea of different races of, of demi-humans or something like that. Okay. But when you actually read through it, it just seems like the society they're putting together of the goblins seems to be this kind of weird Victorian era right. system. Right. Or Victorian era society. Right. And, you know, it was totally... I guess maybe they were going for that Little England syndrome kind of thing where, um, you know, the the kind of chauvinistic English people who never actually travel or anything like I that. Yeah. So, or never actually leave the country and just think, you know, it's the best country in the world and all this. Well, it is the best country in the world, but... <laughs> but yeah, well, maybe it was just because it was kind of a, a, a sold a false bill of goods or something, or maybe I, I should have actually read more of the uh, more of the back cover or something, but... So what was it billed as? This Goops Goblins? It just seemed, when I picked it up, it was just, it looked like, I thought it was going to be like, kind of demi-humans and orcs goblins. Oh, so yeah, but, but it was actually it more like a, kind of a weird Victorian era caricature of England. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe that was just the... Weird. weird kind Maybe, of well, like, you've got the Gurps book with the cover on upside down and back to front. There wasn't just a, the wrong cover. Maybe, on there, yeah, was it? yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that was Gurps yeah. Victorian England. Uh or maybe uh, maybe LARPing I'd like to get rid of. <laughs> we've, we've, I know we've said uh, privately, I don't know publicly, that uh, the only people 
that tabletop role players can safely make fun of is our uh, our, our LARPers. <laughs> yes, well, when you want to feel uh, when you feel, want to feel exclusive, you always need uh, somebody to uh, to pick on. To but pick uh, on, yeah. yeah, that that stereotype of LARPers anyway. But we've had a number of guests on here that are uh, that are into LARPing, and I think they're beyond the uh, the lightning bolt lightning bolt. <laughs> and I, I know Dan, the other Dan's done a little bit of LARPing too. He's talked about it a bit, and it just seems the uh, just seems most of the LARPers just want to go to the bar and hang out. But they can't do it unless they're in character. I don't know if that's, if that's true or not. I know when I go uh, on 51st Ave, there's a park right across from the university farm. Right. And there's usually a group of LARPers there. Like, is that right? Uh, full combat, full uh, kind of costume armor with the oh, is that right? swords. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if that's... Yeah. I, I, I don't there's know another one I think that meets in... Maybe Duggan Park or something out on the north end. Was it right? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I don't know if it's the same group, but it sounds like you know an awful lot about laughing there, Clint. <laughs> maybe you want. Maybe you're in the closet. 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 Exactly. Is there anything you're looking forward to coming out? Um, maybe I'd like to see what Dungeons and Dragons Five kind of looks like. Right. Um, I don't really play it that much, but it's kind of the. I don't know what you call it, touchstone of the industry, kind of like the standard. I would say, I would say that most people have had experience with uh, with Dungeons and Dragons, and a lot of people's first experience yeah. will have been with Dungeons and Dragons, or at least fifty percent of, of people. Yeah, I had never actually played it until the one campaign or one little session you ran. I think it was the Temple of Elemental Evil. Yeah, that's right, the Temple of Elemental Evil. That's the uh, the go to if there's uh, nobody or there's a number of things change and the person can't run or we're, we're short of people yeah we play the uh, the Temple of Elemental Evil and that of was your homemade uh, GM screen off <laughs> right. uh, right. box <laughs> that's right yeah I made, an, I made a GM screen for old time's sake and put the uh, put the maps and stuff on the inside fortunately my memory's good enough to remember the rules but I just for old time's sake I, uh, I had a, a GM a GM screen and, and yeah it was uh, it was fun times but um, yeah I'd never actually played it before that there was a group in there was a, not a group but couple guys in high school that that played it but right. uh, i was i was curious but not curious enough to want to actually talk to them and hang out with them right what was the pr- impression of dungeons and dragons at the time uh when you were uh when you were in high school um it was you know such a small high school that um right I didn't. Yeah, it was kind of like I maybe want to play, but I don't like. Hang, I don't really want to hang out with these guys. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the problem. It's not like I was like the cool jock or something in high school. But <laughs> no, no, I know. It was, I know. It was what you small mean. enough that it was like, well, there's no real cliques or anything. But no, sure. Like, you know, yeah, and it wouldn't have been looked down on because everybody else was kind of into like science fiction and right. and everything like that and yeah. fantasy novels and things. Sure. Yeah, but yeah, that's the the thing, isn't it? We've talked about lots of times the yeah. geek social fallacies, but being being uh, being friendly or at least you know somewhat cordial with the people that you're playing with is I think is important despite the fact that you're taking on despite the fact you're taking on other roles I think you still need to get along with the people there because we spend an awful lot of our time not really uh, role playing most of the things we well not most but I would say 50% <laughs> of the time we spend together is uh, is giving each other a hard time about you know unrelated stuff so yeah I think the fact that I wasn't really friends with the guys that were playing it might have had a big uh, impact on whether I wanted to play or not yeah. Um, yeah, like you said, it's, it's a lot different when when you're actually gaming with your friends. Yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, the social aspect of it is important, particularly so. Been, maybe at the time it would have been fun, like, oh, I roll uh, a you know, d20 and I kill this monster. That might have been fun in like junior high or high school. But right. If you didn't like those people, it'd be like, oh, I don't really want to do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing. Yeah, you need your you need your card. I'll go. Ultra. I'll go home and play. Uh, what was the time? Uh, Final Fantasy 7 or something like that on, right. on PlayStation. Or something. Right. 
If you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? I would definitely choose GM. I like uh, being a player, but this is a way of, of kind of avoiding writing a book or something like that, right. where I can actually write what I want to to write down and have a have a bit of a story that I want to tell that I don't have to fully fully do all the work for. Right. <laughs> okay. I'm, a, I'm a lazy novelist at heart, so... Yeah, it's one of the... It's, uh, I can't remember exactly who it was now, but it was, it was talking about impermanent art. That's the thing about, about role-playing games is that... And why, you know, people telling role-playing stories, it's never... It's never as enjoyable for somebody hearing yeah. the role-playing stories as it is in the person's head that's telling the story. And yeah. that's the thing about impermanent art. And I, Well, I mean, I can only talk about role-playing when it comes to that. But, you know, one of those, it's you know, three hours or three and a half hours once every every week or how often you play of, um, you know, it, it was good if you were there type stuff because unless you're actually experiencing it at the time, there's no way to convey that. Well, that's, that's true. There's a lot of, like, little inside jokes and things like yeah. that that we keep repeating. Yeah. Um, so it's either, it's maybe we play, you know, 20 minutes and somebody makes a dick joke of some kind, then we play for a little longer. And that's right. Yeah, that's, um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that, that goes on that's not directly related to role-playing, but, you know, when, when you're a grown-up person, sometimes it's the only sort of social contact you have in a week with, with, with friends. You know, most of the time it's with workmates or uh, spouses or kids or something, but in terms of actually having a chance to, to hang out with, with like-minded individuals... Um, it's the only chance that I know for myself. It's oftentimes the only time during the week that that that, that can happen. Uh, what do you think is the perfect number of uh, people to role play? Uh, I think probably three or four in the GM. I know you've talked about that before as being your perfect number. Mm. That's usually what we end up having. So that's it right. Works yeah. Out. Um, but sometimes everybody is there, right? When we've had we've played before when there's been five. I think we've even played one time with. Six players when Richard was there, or maybe five. I think five. That there was one with. Was it your daughter's birthday or Angie's birthday or something like that? Right. We yeah, had, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was. It was Marley's birthday. Yeah. Yeah. When you had the extra and and uh, was it her sister was the first time she'd ever. That's right. Yeah. Game. That's true. Yeah. It was. Yeah. And that was kind of. It was. It was. I wouldn't have wanted to GM for that many people, no. but. Especially because you had a few few people who were newer at it, and you had yes. to kind of slow down and say, right. "Oh, this is what you do," and this right. is kind of. But she picked it up pretty well. So yes, yeah, I, I think that uh, if you, it's a little bit more difficult when you're younger. I think to um, you're a bit more concerned about how you're going to look actually role playing. Yeah. So if you're reasonably confident in yourself when you're older, there's not that much of a of a of a barrier, particularly if you if you're a social person. But you know, I think that going from being in the third person, like my character does this or my character does that, then to, you know, I do this or I do that, and then maybe even doing the voices um, is difficult for people that struggle with, with public speaking. I mean, it's only a relatively small audience, but it's an audience that's completely focused on you. So for, for people that have trouble with that, I think that that may be one of the impediments to, you know, going from that uh, from that first person. That I think what person. helps too is that the subject matter is a lot closer to you if you're playing a character. Right. Rather than trying to come up with a speech about um, something you were assigned for English class. Like, here, talk about this book for 15 minutes, and it's like, oh, I've read it, but <laughs> yeah. what does it mean? You know, that's right. It, yeah. I don't think it means anything, but it's yeah, just that's right. But I've got it. Exactly, yeah, you've got to yeah. satisfy the requirements. But if, if it's something that you know very well, it's a lot easier. And if it's a character, it's just like, well, this is my sheet, this is my few things that I know how to do. Mm-hmm. I can just kind of make it up from there. Right. Or you make your character as as you would like to be kind of thing about 
I know these are this is my this is my personal skills. I'm going to give that to my character, so yeah. it'll be easier the first time to right. Yeah, yeah. Introduce that, I think, yourself. Yeah, yeah. You're probably to, right to gaming when you have um, when people start out. Probably a lot of their characters that they play are actually um, a lot like themselves, and I, and that's a security blanket, I suppose. And as much as if you have that, um, if you've got personal experiences to draw on. I mean, any good novelist will tell you that the best stuff that they write is from is from personal experience. They don't necessarily have to have had that exact situation before, but to be able to draw from personal experiences, I think, is um, is an important. Um, way to lend truth to the things that your characters yeah. do and say so so uh should males uh play females i think it's very much up to the the gm or not the gm but the the group as to why you're doing it is it because if if the character maybe requires i know there's some games like you've talked about the one about the samurai or not right. the samurai, but the samurai yeah. and the geisha. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, where I can't exactly you have to be yeah. okay. That's a that's kind of a conceit of the game. That's right. Yeah. Or or uh, Legend of the Five Rings, where there's right. certain classes that require you to be that sex yeah. Yeah, or sure. gender or whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, I think yeah, it really depends why you want to do it. If you're just if you want to explore that, then okay. Sure. As long as everybody else is is kind of okay with it, I right. guess. Right. Um, but if you're just going to do it to be juvenile, then maybe it's like, wow, maybe you should just sit this one out. <laughs> That's right, yeah. I can't imagine anybody from our group actually doing that. No, no. I, with, I, with and, I don't know. I don't want to say we're immature, but <laughs> I'm saying we're immature. <laughs> That's right, yeah. We have a lot of, uh, lot of puerile, uh, puerile humor in our, uh, in our games, but... But uh, it helps to pass the time. Um, Sorry if I'm shattering the image. Or shattering your, uh, <laughs> that's right. Here, removing, so. the, removing the veil of my uh, yeah. my role playing uh, my role playing credibility, my very earnest um, credentials. So, what do you think the ideal amount of time to actually uh, role play is? Uh, like ours, like three to five hours. I think anything more, and it just kind of drags on where you're trying to stretch out what mm. you have, especially that's the right. GM. You kind of um, you kind of prepare or get the sense of, okay, this is what they're going to do in this yeah, time absolutely. period. So if you go over it, you're kind of like, i got to stall yeah. until kind of time expires. Yes. Or I have to stretch out what I have. Yes. And... Yeah, I think that that's it. Yeah, Abs- absolutely. And then I mean, that's the, I mean, anything shorter would be like, well, it's, this is really incomplete. We didn't even get started kind of thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, you can get a sense from your uh, from the players or from, from, from the audience, I guess, um, what the... What the what a good length of time is like. If you can get to a good good point. Sometimes when you when you you GM, you can kind of see that you know that uh, to be continued next week moment on the horizon. You can and you can work towards that. But sometimes you know you feel like it's it's going too long and 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 whatever is is going on is, is consuming a lot of time. But it's not really moving the the story forward. And as a GM, it's often difficult to gauge whether that's something that the players are really into and that they're enjoying, or if it's um, you know they're just they're waiting for something to happen, but you haven't quite picked up those uh, those cues yet. Because it's a fine it's a fine balance between allowing players to explore what it is that they find interesting about the character they've created, and having the story move forward. Now you're never going to please all the people all of the time, or at least in those rare situations where everybody's into what's going on and it's all just going off perfectly. You know those are the those are the the great moments of. Uh, being a GM, but it's not always possible to have everybody moving in the same direction at the same time or catching everybody with the same energy level. So I think that 
you know, quite apart from preparing your your setting at the very least um, and knowing what system you're going to be using. Part of it, and I think this is probably a learned skill, is part of being a GM is being sensitive to the ebb and flow of energy in, in the game and then harnessing that, um, letting it go and sometimes reining it in and sort of trying to pace pace the game. I talk a lot about pacing in, uh, in my book and there's no real magic to getting it right. A lot of it comes down to experience. Would, would you say that you've learned more from watching people doing it and doing it yourself? Or do you think there is, for some people, you can actually learn that stuff from a book? I think definitely you have to do it. Um, watching other people is really good because I wouldn't have had a clue mm. how to do it if if I hadn't been involved with a group that had experienced players, experienced GMs. Yeah. If you're starting out for the very first time and none of your players have done it either, um, I guess the best is just to read through it and maybe even read... Uh, I mean, pick up a couple other books and just kind of... Mm. Generally, kind of get That's an idea. Right, yeah. of, you can create a synthesis of how to ideas. do, of how to yeah. how you want to proceed. Um, it really helps to have that initial uh, initial players that have played before, mm. like you were talking. Always yeah. talk about the seed players. Yeah. Um, I had always, I had, I think from the first when I ran my first campaign, um, I had only been playing less than a year, maybe six months. Sure. I had something I wanted to, to write, so I just kind of started writing out. Mm. what I wanted and I, I, I know I over prepared a lot yeah well th- that's see, we've talked about that but a number of other guests have talked about that but I don't think it's really possible to to over prepare you maybe over prepare for what you think is going to happen in a session but all the preparation you do on setting and, and characters and backstory and all that type of stuff yeah. you'll find that the longer the game goes you know, you'll end up incorporating all of that yeah. stuff so it might feel like you've put in 10 hours and you got out maybe one hour because everything you prepared was to the right and they went left at the first I think that was that was definitely part of it was the maybe just or not over preparing but preparing in the wrong direction sure uh, putting a lot of characters of a lot of NPCs that were a lot of vendors and things like that and I was like oh how can I work these people into the story yes. and then you never actually do because they never actually go to that town or something that's like right that. yeah but those guys can crop up another town yeah. right whenever you need one you'll be just you'll be like you know go back in your head to some of those things that you've you've created in the past and then you can you can slot you can slot those guys in so I never feel like any preparation is waste unless you're actually creating a dungeon that and the, you're and you've got places where the, where the players don't go. I mean, that can be that can be wasted, I suppose. But if you want to get away from that, um, get away from that idea, you can always prepare the contents of of rooms and then allocate them randomly when the people come come along. I mean, that's assuming you're just doing a doing a dungeon crawl. But another, what I think would be a valuable tool for people nowadays is there are a lot of um, actual play podcasts and actual play episodes on youtube so you can actually hear what what an actual what a game sounds like without actually being there and i know there are some people post their google hangouts i know that uh um, sean hayworth's burning wheel group with sean nittner and Kristen, uh, who have all been guests on the show you know they've got their weekly i think burning wheel um i know that um jason king uh episode 27 He's uh, got a, an actual play podcast, so there's definitely some other resources that that people can take advantage of if they you know take a look around on the on the internet to get a feeling of what it's what it's actually like. But uh, do you think that you've got a voice as a GM? Like, obviously, you're going to bring your own um, personality to to GMing. But do does 
does a GM have uh, like a really clearly identifiable way of, of running a game? And do you find that there's a big difference when you're playing, say, for example, in Dan's game or in, in my games? I think definitely, it's, uh, maybe not a not voice or something, but definitely the subject matter. Uh, we all kind of stick with the same genre kind of thing. Um, right. Maybe the way you handle things, maybe the way other people plan events. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't really sort of put any uh, any time into sort of timing. I, don't, I think that analyzing is probably a probably a bad idea if you can look at it really, really carefully. But um, there's a there's a, a scale, I guess, um, from you know you've got social interactions at one end, and you've got you know action. At the other end, and I know that it's impossible to completely divorce them, but yeah. um, you can, I think, as a, as a GM, depending on you know, your own personal um, preferences, I suppose, you know, a lot more of your game can be about developing the interactions between the characters, between the characters and the NPCs. Um, the varying amounts of that is compared with how much of the plot you want to you want to push yeah. push forward. So, and I guess it's a lot like novels. I know that when I um, like I've spoken about them before, but Ian Rankin's Inspector Rebus novels. You know, Edinburgh the city is is a character, and then Rebus is a character too. And you get to you get to know them, and then you've got um, like Michael Crichton uh, books, which are really like, but there's a lot about plot, and there's a lot about setting and all that sort of thing, and not not much uh, and not much in the the actual character development, the development of the relationships between the people. I like both of them, but they're different. I like them in different ways, and I think that the same same thing is true of uh, of comedies on. On television, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the strictly speaking sitcoms, um, you know, the really good ones. Most of the humour comes from a character like Seinfeld, for example. For me, was funny because you got to know what the characters were like, and it was the not quite the end jokes, but stuff was funny only in the context of things that had gone before. I didn't really like Friends that much, but I know that they. Uh, that there was a lot of development of, of characters and the character interactions is what made things funny. A lot of Chandler's humour came from knowing what Chandler was like and not so much exactly what it was uh, that he said. But then you look at other programs like I don't know, like The King of Queens or um, more traditional sitcom. Yeah, that's right. Like, yeah, yeah, like Happy Days and stuff like that. You know, there's not a lot to laugh at about the characters. And I think that um, for enduring satisfaction, it's really got to be the characters that the that. You know that the the comedy comes from, or in the case of a role playing game, if you can really tell stories that are based upon the back um, the background that you've developed for a character, then you know that's. that's I think even even some of the more traditional, not traditional, but I guess traditional sitcoms would be something like Big Bang Theory, where yeah. there's still character, a lot of still character development may not necessarily come through, but you know more about the backstory of characters and things like that. Yeah, and as for the uh, the GM thing, I know the one difference. Um, I know Sanford, who's another guy we usually play with, his games are more of a puzzle. Yes. Where you have some character, but it's more of, this is a, it's not like a dungeon crawl, but it's like, well, there's something going on here, and it's up to us to figure out what right. it is. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's that, that element of, um, that element of surprise or secret backstory in your, in your game, you know, like that's the, uh, you know, like that's the X-Files type thing. That was, I think, well, at least for me, that was the first program that introduced a really, solid idea of, you know, there's a larger backstory going on behind each episode. It did come up every single episode, but there was always a development of this of this backstory and, and I think that um, at least for me that's an important element of uh, any type of story that you're that you're going to tell. If you want it to be uh, memorable, you know, constantly feeling like, you know, you're moving towards a bigger picture, 
um, is, is an important way to keep your characters hooked in. And if you can d attach that bigger picture to some of the backgrounds that your characters developed, you're going to create the, you know, the buy-in, and you're also going to create the sort of enduring, um, enduring satisfaction, or at least endure, enduring engagement of, uh, of your players. I think that was also kind of a, um, a theme, or, or a, a theme, I guess, of another show, a couple of other shows that I think it's Glenn Morgan and James Wong, Right. The creators of X-Files, I'm not sure if those are the two names, but I think those are the two. Chris Carter? Maybe, yeah. There was two other, there's James, I think, were maybe the executive producers or something. Sure, that. yeah. Um, there was a spin-off, that Lone Gunman. Yeah, the Lone Gunman, yeah. I, yeah. I, like, I really like that show, but yeah. there's one of the ones, I always remember the episode of uh, Family Guy when it comes back on the air. Right. And he's, Peter's naming all the shows that have been cancelled, and you list half of them, and there's like, those are good shows, and half the ones I like were all cancelled. Then Fox, right. Fox started really going to the reality TV. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand what the, I mean, I, well, I do understand it's all about money, but it seems like there are, you know, shows like The King of Queens that, that ran for nine or ten seasons, and then shows like, say, for example, Arrested Development is the one that people remember um right now but there are plenty of other ones that have gone by the wayside that were good programs but which people didn't um but which not enough people watched for them to stay in the stay on television so that what the critics think is you know is really unimportant um but in terms of the studios it's really only the numbers that that matter so so yeah, it's, it's a shame that some of those goes go by the wayside for sure but i guess with arrested development they're they're remaking the. There was some picture on the internet the other day. I guess they're doing a movie, and they're also doing some of the uh, like thirteen episodes or something like that. Yeah, that, I don't know if it's like going to be on TV. It might be just like straight to DVD, right, or some kind of internet subscription or something sure. like that. But yeah, so what's because uh, what happened with Community? Do you watch Community? It got bumped from its time slot. I think they moved it, and the numbers dropped, and there was. Uh, they always have to cancel shows every every end of the season or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. midway through season. I think right. that was one of the ones that got dropped originally, and I don't know if it's back on or not. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's it's going to be back because they're talking about who the new actors are going to be that are on the show. I don't recall any of them, but my, my wife really enjoys Community. You know, we we watched it together, but yeah, I think uh, I think it is coming back for another for another season. So, how do you prepare for a game session? Um, usually, what we do. I mean, for most of these, we've all written our own kind of campaign worlds. Right. Um, for the first one, I just kind of created, a, I had an idea of a world, and it was kind of a, I guess it would be like a post-apocalyptic Edmonton. Yep. Uh, maybe like a hundred years after. So it was a totally, the society rebuilt, but it was a totally different society. It was more, I always wanted to do some kind of medieval fantasy, but set in a modern era kind of right. thing. Right, yep. And um, so basically I just had some maps uh, drew some borders and kind mm. of got an idea of okay, this kingdom is or this this duchy or whatever is over here, and, mm. and uh, these are the ruling classes. These are the kind of peasants. They're not peasants, but farmers and regular people. Yeah. Uh, where are the players going to fit in in yes. this world? Yeah. Um, maybe a little bit of an overall, an overarching something happening behind them that they don't necessarily know of, but. Yeah, they might they'll get they might get involved or they might not. It's still going to happen. Yes, you know, yeah, that's right. Regard, yeah. Not not necessarily regardless of their involvement, but it's going to happen. They might affect it or they might not, yeah. depending on how the players want. Yeah, that's an important involved. thing as well. Um, as far as I'm concerned, you want the players to. If you're running a heroic game, the players going to be heroic regardless, and they're going to affect their world. But at the same time, it's also important for stuff to be going on in the background, so they get a sense of the world is not waiting 
for them to do something. So having stuff going on in the background, developing your NPCs, developing what they're going to be doing, having you know the seasons changing or, or having changes from one time they're in a town to the next, you know, helps to give the players an idea of a that they're part of a bigger picture. Now, like I say, there may be heroic characters that are going to make you know they're going to change the world, but at the same time, um, I think it's still important for them to feel like you know there is things are happening. And Something bigger than themselves. That, that's right, and, and having that that element of doesn't necessarily not necessarily time pressure, but getting them to feel like you know what they do does actually have a flow on effect. I think is a good idea to convey to your, your players, and that was one of the things about um, that I wrote into Victoria is that uh, during uh, during combat, um, it's not really a hit points based resolution system. The system um, sort of supports a cinematic telling of of what is going on in a in a combat, but at the end, it's not just uh, and all the hit points are gone and your adversary is dead. There is actually a point where you know you've the word I use is bested, but but basically you've you have defeated your enemy, but you actually have a choice of what you're going to do. Then it's a conscious choice of whether you're going to whether you're going to actually. You know, deliver a, a killing blow or not, and if you do decide to deliver a killing blow, then there's consequences. Then there, then there are you. consequences for it, exactly. And, and a lot of games, you know, you just run at hit points, and then the, the, the then the adversary is dead. But um, and there's not really any consequences for that, or any point where the players think, you know, what do I actually want to, you know, commit murder? Because ultimately, if you have bested your opponent, and um, you know, you're you're consciously deciding to end their life, and, and I think that that's that's, a, that's one of the things I had trouble with with some of my campaigns was coming up with adversaries because it was that traditional thing of like, well, their hit points die, or hit points go, their hit points go to zero and then they die. But I kind of thought about it if if you were really doing that, if you were the heroes and you were going around and just killing people, I'd be like, mm. well, the cops are going to come looking for you, or somebody's <laughs> going to try to stop you. That's right. Yeah. Um, so I always, I know it's just a game, but I always like that kind of real, yeah, a little oh, bit of that realism where that doesn't really make sense for this world. No, if, that's right. Yeah. If this was happening in this world, yes, you would be stopped. There, there are police of of a sort. Yes, they would track down these guys that are just slaughtering people. Yes. Left and oh right. yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that comes down to developing, uh, you know, the rules of your world. If if it turns out that, um, you know, if it turns out that there's a sufficiently strong police presence or some kind of uh, group that's keeping the peace then it should be you know that should be known to um people now i know that there are games where you can develop all of those things with the players uh, ahead of time you know you can agree on some some rules about the world but if you want to be in a place where you can suggest to the players ahead of time you know what this is without actually having to explicitly you know it's the idea of and in, in storytelling of, of show don't tell right don't say if you kill people, you will be in trouble. You know, you want to have some kind of a, uh, you know, have the players or in one of your descriptions have an incidental description of, you know, such and such wanted for murder or yeah. you know, the police going around asking somebody about, you know, have you seen this person or somebody was killed here or or have somebody discussing in the tavern or whatever it might be about, you know, somebody got killed there. That isn't it terrible type thing. So people know that 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 life has a value. It's not just a matter of you're going to kill somebody and that's that's that. Or you see a a uh, you know you've got the, a woman who's who's begging because. You know, her husband was was killed by a group of quote unquote heroic adventurers. Yeah. yeah, those damn adventurers again. Whenever yeah. some, whenever they come to town, either talk to us or they kill us. What's well, like the whole idea of uh, are you really the hero mm, yeah. of your campaign? Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's if you cast it the other way around, it might be like, well, 
that's not really heroic going around <laughs> slaughtering people. That's right. Because well, you think they're bad. That's right. Yeah, monsters minding their own business. They're asleep on their pallet in the dungeon. Somebody comes in and and hacks them to pieces yeah. for no for no apparent reason. Yeah, there's a a certain morality that seems. To, I, I know that that, that the Dungeons and Dragons system has got a built-in sort of morality system. I suppose which never really makes sense. To no, me. no. I mean, they're, they're lawful good uh, guys going around, but they're you know they're just killing people left, right, you know, just for being evil. You know, it's. Yeah. It's that idea that. Um, well, I think I saw something online. It was a it was a breakdown of the. There's always the those the pictures where it's like you have you know the nine moralities and then they have a character that fits that. Yes, yeah. There was yeah. another one too that was like it was just a list of the the nine moralities or whatever, and it was like how you could justify your actions. Like I think it was something like. Um, stealing gold or something like that right and it was like if you're lawful good you can justify it this way yes down to lawful evil and you're doing the exact same action but you're justifying and i was like that doesn't seem no that's right doesn't seem logical that's right there's no there's no moral absolutes which i guess is true in in real life even but um yeah that that i there's another the other problem i have was too i was i guess neverwinter nights i don't know if it's one or two i think neverwinter nights two where you have a, you can play, you know, you play your characters, whatever mm. morality uh, or alignment, I guess. Yeah. And there's this evil, this lawful evil or neutral evil ranger right. that's just kind of hanging out with your group. Yeah. You can choose to to use him or not, but then he comes along and just kind of starts, you know, he he. I think one of the cut quests or cut scenes was he has to join your group to to scout uh, a particular area right. and lead you somewhere, mm-hmm. and you're just kind of thinking, well. I've got this lawful good paladin with me mm. and this lawful evil ranger and they just seem to get on fine. <laughs> they, do, they don't talk to each other. Yeah. They're just like, okay, that, that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. That's right. And I like those games. I love Bioware's, or not Bioware, but I guess it wasn't Bioware that did that, Activision or whoever it was. Sure. And I love that series. Yeah. And, and I, I have a lot of love for the whole Bioware, all of their computer mm. RPGs and everything. Right. I think maybe they saved the genre for, for the computer. Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. Yeah, I, I don't play a lot of uh, RPGs, but uh, I know that... Uh, well, at least computer ones. But I know that uh, some of the ones that I do, I played um, uh, Baldur's Gate and also... Uh, I Baldur's Gate, yeah. And I, I didn't play Baldur's Gate too, but also Icewind Dale. Yeah, that yeah, was the... That was that wasn't them. That wasn't Bioware. That was Black Isle. I want to say. I'm not sure if that's right. But no, I'm, I'm it was their sure. it was their gaming engine. Yes. Yeah. That that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And as you say, I think they did yeah. save the, the because everything you know you can check the DNA of basically everything back to that. Right. Yeah. And I always the, remember the little some of the little in jokes and things like that. Mm. Like um, maybe it was I don't know if it was Bio, if it was Baldur's Gate or maybe it was one of the expansions. They had a you went to this it was in like a port city or whatever. Right. And you went to this one tavern, and there was this guy, there was like Sailor Tom, and he was singing, uh, Blow the Man Down. Right. Give me some time to blow the man. Yeah. And there's the, this next guy to him next time, and he was Sailor Noof. Right. And he was singing Eyes of the Bye. Yeah, is that right? So I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the, uh... That, that joke will be gotten by maybe five members of the audience, depending <laughs> on where they live. That's right. You can, uh, you can look into, look into that. Um... I know that uh, one of the things I find really evocative when it comes to putting together a, a game is uh, maps and being a uh, a surveyor or what uh, survey technician. A survey, te- sorry. The ALS Association is kind of touchy about using that. Oh, is that using right? The term, yeah. Well, what's the difference? Like a surveyor is 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 a professional who's a member of the society and can sign. Oh, plans, like right. a Professional engineer, right? Whereas I'm just the guy that draws stuff up. Right, but I mean it's the same training to start with, isn't it? 
Well, the surveyors, the, the actual surveyors usually go to universities. Right. Oh, okay. I went to university, but for something totally useless. Right. So, well, that's not useless. Wow. We appreciate it in the games. Uh, so, so you'd like? So, do you find maps evocative? Like, is that what gets you? Because when I was when I was first playing Dungeons and Dragons, first putting games together, I know I had the the, um, the Greyhawk campaign setting, and I took the map and I put it up on the wall, and I had all of the all of the stuff that I could look at, and I find that I found that pretty evocative in terms of you know thinking about stories you might better tell just based upon the the map. Do you use the map to like the maps that you deal with, and so sometimes to put together stories. Usually that's one, of, that's one of the first things I do. It really helps to kind of think of that world as a real world. to give right. it, uh, Even if, like, like, I've used, I think all of my games have been set in, um, I, I ran a campaign, August Storm 2107, I think I called it. Right. And it was set in Edmonton after post-apocalypse, and I used real places, and I even got land locations yeah. of, of actual things where there's nothing there. It's just a bare field. It's just a farmer's field. Right. That's where I put the town, so I right. know where it is. And yes. there's a highway that runs past there. Now that's a train line. Yeah. Um, so that kind of really informs and informs the the kind of world it is. Yes. Uh, what problems they have. Well, it's mostly a farming community. So they might have problems with people stealing cattle. They might have right. problems with the weather. Right. Um, and they're you know so far out from a large population center, yeah. and that that has problems as well. Like even if you live in the town, yes. you're still isolated from any kind of larger right. larger group. So right. the heroes would have different challenges. So if they if they encounter some bandits, they have to either fight them yes. or try to find help. They can't right. just you know run away to back to a city where no. there's some cops. They have because you can't go as can't move as fast post apocalyptic, right? Only horses and things Only like that. Only horses, yeah, yeah. And you've got being outliers as well. I suppose there's less um, law and order, at least less obvious law and order. I mean, people's personal moral code is the is the strongest yeah. thing keeping people behaving. So. Yeah, I really wanted to kind of bring that kind of Western, the old West kind right. of flavor, right. where you have to decide whether you want to fight this guy and the consequences. I know I didn't really bring that up that much in the game, but that's one of the things I wanted to go for. Something like maybe like uh, Dogs in the Vineyard or something like that, where you have the consequences of your actions mm. and that really imply, and that really impacts on the storyline. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that everything that you do should have some some effect on the story and should push the story the story forward. We've talked about it lots of times about, you know, having all roles being meaningful and making sure stuff stuff happens. But the, the cause and effect, you know, that flow-on um, story that comes from all the decisions, uh, again, helps to... You know, you, it helps you feel like you're actually a serious part of a of a, of a bigger picture, and, and and I absolutely agree with in terms of maps. You know, having that, you know, creating that real. I mean, even if it's a map that you've drawn yourself, creating that world and thinking about what it might look like, and then that does, as you're saying, it informs all of the different sort of problems that people in the land will living on the land will have, but also can suggest the the stories. Do you find stories have come out of out of the actual just looking at the map itself? I think one of the things that I did with that was, for the second chapter of the Augustorum game, was at the start of it, there was a group of, a large group of bandits that had organized themselves into somewhat of an army, and they had attacked the uh, the main town of, of Mirakoshi, and to get there they kind of split up their forces and there was the lake. Right. And they had to cross the lake, and part of the, the backstory for one of the characters was that they had... 
seen this happening. They were uh, part of a company of scouts. They had seen it happening. Sure. And they had made a deal with these uh, naiads sure. or something. I think it was naiads yeah. that were dwelling in the lake. And right. that had consequences for the story. And I think that was, I hadn't really planned on that, but it was just like, hey, it's an interesting idea. I wanted to get more supernatural elements into it. Right. And that was an easy way to do it. Right. I might have thought of something different, but that was because that lake was because, there. Because the, because the lake existed. Yeah, I think that um, that having... And also having those, even if the places are not real, like the example you gave is of actually of Edmonton, so you've seen all these type of places, or at least outlying areas, but having real, having your real experience, the real things that you've seen, and then actually transposing those onto even fictitious maps helps to create a more realistic setting. If you're explaining for something you can see inside your head, even if it's only because you've taken the trouble to draw the map and think about what's going here and why that would be there and, and, and so on and so forth, can create a, more, can create a richer, richer setting and, uh, and you know, having a having a rich setting or having the, the setting as a character itself is, I think, is a good way to, to draw players into your the story you're trying to tell and 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 also, like you say, you know, inform some of their background. Yeah, I think we ran that one for maybe six months or something altogether. Yeah. yeah. And the second one I started working on before you left for the summer yeah. was a Roman campaign, and right. I'm kind of a big Roman history fan. Right. And that's what useless degrees in, right? No. Um, that's my useless minor. Oh, okay. <laughs> my useless degree is political science. And now I'm a, I'm a survey technician, so for this next one, hopefully I can combine my love of politics and obscure real estate law. So uh, for the second one, I'd, I'd started a Roman-style campaign set in maybe 30, so 20, 28 BC. Right. Uh, we were, I think we did two sessions of that. And then I just kind of lost interest in it. Why do you suppose that that was? I think one of the problems, I think one of your other guests, I can't remember who was a friend of yours, maybe it was Hamish, was Possibly. he had his degree? Or was, was yes, episode like 25, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that was one of the problems, was that I knew quite a lot about that time and that setting, and I had an idea of where it was going, and I kind of, not, not frustrated, but one of the problems I ran into was I wanted you to affect the story more. Right, and by having less development, you could develop your own world more. Right. So I thought of the idea. Well, what if I switch it to ancient Rome? Right. Before Rome was established, so you would be comrades of Romulus. Right. And I had an idea too of, I think it was somebody else's idea, but I'll, I'll take credit. I'll steal it. Was that Romulus and Remus were going to be werewolves or something? Right. Because of the whole you know system, and you had to figure out. That was part of the mystery of it. Sure. And then Romulus ascends, um, becomes a god or whatever of Quirinus. And, sure. But the problem I had with that was like, well, I already know how that story goes. And I think I would be really tempted to push it to go that way. Right. Rather than allowing the characters to make their own story. Sure. I think it's sort of like the idea of the modules with uh, the story on Rails where the story is good, but it doesn't allow the players to have any input. So they're just kind of playing out a story that's already written. So if you just kind of think, well, why am I even bothering to, to be here? The story would go on without any in from the, any input from the players. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like you say. It's a story that's already been written. There's no there's no impetus. And that again goes to this idea. If you if you're an experienced um, GM, I think probably you would do this anyway. But the story should really come from the character and what the characters are interested in. If you have too much plotted out to start with then you've kind of already told the story in your head and and then it actually is less interesting for you as a gem and, yeah. and that's sort of what I was alluding to earlier on that that it just doesn't work because 
for whatever reason the story's already played out and you're not getting anything out of it as a gem so it's hard to it's hard to invest so you know putting those hooks in there and giving people the opportunity to interact with the story based upon the specific characters they've created with things that they're interesting in is what makes it interesting not only for the players but also for for you as the gem and maybe that's why it uh, peter maybe that's why games peter out if they you know, there's just nothing new in it for the gem i think that's one of the mistakes i made with the very first campaign i ran was that i had an arching overarching story but it was very hard to necessarily fit the characters into it right um, not necessarily that that they wouldn't have the skills they needed to you know solve the mystery or to to stop the bad guy or whatever right but just just the idea of allowing the characters to develop as characters right um, I know I think the character you played was a I think it was the order of the the hand of justice or something right so I had to create a kind of a um, kind of an idea of what that was going to be and it never really felt good right it was kind of like well it's kind of forced depending right. on his character so sure I think yeah if, if you would have come up with the idea or if I could have come up with the idea beforehand right of what this group was yeah. and your character might have fit it better or if you could have created it and I was like yeah that's fine yes but, but just they, the idea of yeah. working you know working with the players right. to create right to create a, uh, a reasonable and believable and I'll use the word organic Sure. Uh, story and and characters that fit into that world. Yeah, yeah. Getting that, getting the players to sort of agree on the way that the world is going to be, or like you say, you know, passing that. And I know sort of talk about that in, in Victoria, and I you know, say you know you can offer plot points or whatever your device might be in your game. But for somebody to take the opportunity to develop their character and then flesh out their backstory with some of the ideas about this, and it gives you. Suddenly, you know, you'll find that, you know, sparks go off, you know, like, oh, wow, you know, like, that's a really good idea because I'm going to use that with that, I'm going to use that with that, and creating this sort of synergy, even if the players are not necessarily aware of it, you know, creating the synergy between their background and the backstory they've told and what it is that, that you have in mind, you know, I think that's what keeps things interesting as a, as a GM, you know, that's really where the goal is for me anyway. So, do you or should a GM's fudge dice rolls? I think if it helps the story, but then again, you get into that that quandary of whether you should actually be rolling a dice or not. If, mm. if it's going to totally derail your story, then don't roll. Have yeah. another idea of right. of how you can you can extricate your characters. If it's if it's a sudden death, yes. I think there's not many games, even even your your beloved Harn. Mm, that's right. <laughs> That have that whole instant death thing. I think yes. a few things have to go wrong. Yes. But if it's a, if it's a situation where the characters put themselves in jeopardy and you've even maybe set some little red flags out like, mm. you know, are you sure you want to do this? Is this, you know, you're kind of trying to hint to them that like That's, yeah, something yeah. bad do, might do, happen. Do you know what's on the line? Yeah. yeah. And, and they, it, they pull ahead then maybe you just got to let it roll and say, yeah. hey, bad shit happens in life. That's right. Well, exactly. That's, and, and you need to c- convey, there's no sense of accomplishment if you never encounter failure yeah you know that it's like the way i used to play the uh fighting fantasy books right i would just you know say yeah i won and skip to the end that's right yeah. skip to the next one right right that uh yeah that's i think that's an important idea too you need to um if you're going to uh, tell a compelling story there has to be something there has to be something on the dice but i think there are situations where you know you're you're going to take that chance um on that role but be prepared for your character to die if it's if it's in story. I know that the game uh, that I played with Chris from from episode five, um, various things had happened, uh, and there was a parallel universe or, or an umbral realm that was that was decaying, and my character felt responsible. So I had saved up all of this this um, quintessence 
which is kind of like magical currency, I suppose. And it came to sort of a pivotal scene. And I just, I used up all the quintessence in, uh, in one go. I knew that it was risky doing it, but it didn't, didn't matter that it was going to blow my character up or he was going to affect this heroic rescue. It didn't matter. Both, both the outcomes were, were fine. So I, I think that there is, a, there is a situation where, and if you've got a good GM, and, and Chris was a great GM, um, if you've got a situation where both outcomes are going to forward the story or create impact, either with the individual character or in con- the context of the whole story, I think that you know, those are situations where you want to have, you know, you, where you want to put it all on the line and, yeah. and you know, just... Whether well, it's something to be said for the kind of heroic death or something. Oh, absolutely. Self-sacrifice. Of course, of course. For a is. character. I'm trying to think of some of the movies, but uh, usually they don't write that into too many movies because they always want the sequel. That's right. The, the, sequel. That's right. Yeah. So if you have the... If you have the uh, the captain that everybody loves goes down with a ship. It's like, well, now what do we do for for number two? That's right. Yeah, spoilers here. There's Leon and the and the professional, right? That's <laughs> that that's one. And then there's uh, trying to think of other, other heroic, super heroic deaths. I'm sure there's people screaming at well, their uh, iPods at the moment. What was the one? Um, I was gonna say Deep Blue, but Deep Impact. Right. The, that's uh, right. Yeah. The other asteroid movie where they actually say, oh, "Okay, we're gonna stay on the ship and and make sure that it blows up so that yeah. the and you know you have that the and Armageddon is Bruce Willis, right? Bruce Willis. Does he actually die? Yeah, he does. He stay. Yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure he. Uh, pretty sure he dies. And then uh, there's uh, Jack and Titanic, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of any other ones right now. There was a lot of room on that. Uh, on that piece of wood or whatever. I think, I think she could have scooched over. They could have been saved. That's right. Well, I read another, I wouldn't say an interesting article, but a, you know, a thought-provoking article is that um, back in the, those days, there was a lot of you know, a lot of class distinction. I know a lot of the, the rich, wealthy people got onto the lifeboats, but um, there's somebody with too much time on their hands did a calculation and figured out that if all the people that had come off the Titanic had done the, in New Zealand, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of coastline, so you learn a lot about about water safety. One of the things you learn about is is huddle. If you've got two people, then you're supposed to get in yeah, the water yeah. and press your bodies as close together as possible to reduce the amount of surface. Yeah. Well, it's like the whole thing with hypothermia: take off your wet layers and just kind of body that's right. with somebody else. That's right. Yeah, and so if all the people that have come off the Titanic had actually huddled together and taken their turns on the outside, they would have all they would have all survived, assuming that they they had life jackets on. So. Yeah. So yeah, there's a. Well, I think that was another one of those things where it was like women and children are first, but we'll lock the uh, the Irish in uh, in, in steerage. <laughs> well, of course, man, women are, women and children, but not Irish, not women Irish. and children. Just you know, women. But I think yeah, there was some human women and children. There was because it's the, is it the hundredth anniversary this year? I think it is. Yeah, yeah, they nineteen twelve. They've yeah. had some stuff on 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 CBC and other things like that about the Titanic. And one of the articles I read was was about how few people actually followed the rules. Right. That w- about the whole women and children first. Yes. Yeah, the uh, that guy, and also there was there was that one character that was vilified, um, like it was the bad guy in the movie, not not Billy Zane's character, but the guy that listen to your friend Billy Zane, he's yeah. a cool guy. <laughs> um, I can't Just remember. Let him challenge you to a walk off. That's right. That's right. A different movie. <laughs> I think. I think that. Yeah, I know that there was. There was Titanic. There was Titanic. <laughs> but I remember something about that. The was the ship's captain or. 
I don't know if it's that. Yeah, it might have been Titanic. Yeah, it was probably Titanic, where the family was actually kind of considering suing. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They were like, yeah. "Well, this totally didn't happen, and you're making my, you know, yeah. great grandfather." Yeah, he was a, a Scottish like guy. He wasn't. It wasn't the captain, but it was the uh, the first mate or whatever it was. Yeah. You know, the guy that's shooting when when they're getting on the lifeboats. Yeah, yeah that. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, I think that yeah, don't um, let the truth stand in the way of a good story. That, that's right. And I think that there was. I think that. Did James Cameron go there and say sorry something, but didn't change anything in the movie? I, I, there was an article online. I'll see if I can find it for the show notes. But, but yeah, that uh, yeah, that was. Well, I, I guess we was... can forgive him for Avatar since it changed the way we watch movies. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not all that much of a fan of three. I think that if you, the movie is made for 3D, I think there's something to be to be said for it. But it's that whole 3D whole 3D thing is just it's not quite to the point where it's faded into the into the background. People want to say, look, wow, look, it's 3D. Let's really make some 3D type stuff happen. Whereas um, nowadays you don't get it so much, but when there was all the first CGI or the great special effects, it's kind of like this is this is a special effects movie. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, Where, I mean, yeah. anything Michael Bay makes is pretty much still that. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. Let's pay fifteen bucks to watch stuff blow up. That's right. Yeah, and that, and and that's that's a different type of movie. But if you get uh, like Avatar, I think was actually a pretty uh, considering it was the first real filmed in three D. All of that you know, really sophisticated computer stuff because it was made like that. I think James Cameron was actually pretty reserved or, you know, he didn't let himself really yeah. do a whole bunch of stuff in 3 just because he could. Yeah. You know, it was, I felt that it was in context. There was a lot of terrible... There was, uh, what was that one? Clash of the Titans? Clash of the Titans, yeah. And that was, I think that was one of the ones where they rushed, like, we have to get something in 3D yeah. and it didn't need to be. <laughs> I mean, right, the movie yeah. didn't need to be remade. Yeah, that's right. At yeah. All. I'm not saying that, uh, what's his name, uh... Sam Worthington? No, no, the the original uh, Ray Harryhausen, or no, was that the one? I don't recall that the being mechanical it. owl or whatever. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah, that's right. And those made... uh, ancient Greeks were quite the engineers, <laughs> developing robotics <laughs> in you know 600 BC before yeah. we even have it now. Sure, exactly. Um, I don't know why they'd focus all that attention on an owl, but hey, maybe they had a thing for uh, for owls. <laughs> so. Uh, is there anywhere that uh, that you won't go as a uh, as a GM? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's one of the in jokes. Uh, won't go there. Um, what was the, what was the origin of that? Do you remember? I I can't I can't remember what it was, but I think that uh, I think I was I was as GM I was playing a bar wench or something like right, that. Right, right. And Sanford was flirting with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was there was some festival or something, and it was like. A love goddess or something, and, right. I, and he propositioned me, and I was like, "No, we're not going to." <laughs> yeah. So that became a running, another running joke. And that's actually the, that's actually the genesis of this uh, this question. And I think that um, I haven't asked it for a couple of weeks, but I think I'll uh, I think I'll start asking that again. But yeah, that's um, I think there, uh, that's the idea of you know the lines and vows. You know, you discuss ahead of time you know what you are and aren't comfortable, what you can sort of suggest, and what you can uh, what you yeah. can. I was buy. listening to, to I was listening to your podcast today at work. It really helps uh, <laughs> pass the time. When you're drawing stuff on a computer, um, I remember the one question about the lines and veils about how there was like a woman or a woman, but a, a player. She I can't remember if it was maybe it was Jen Dixon or something. Like yeah, that. episode seventeen. Uh, she was saying that there was somebody in her group that wanted that was uncomfortable with you know anything bad happening to children or something. It's it's kind of an easy easy trope or a like like wrestling. I know we're gonna talk now. We're gonna talk about pro wrestling. There's something called a cheap pop. Right, and it's basically the he, the 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 heel comes in and he says how much uh, Edmonton sucks and Calgary is awesome and right. the crowd boos and right. he gets that cheap 
heat or whatever. Right, he yes. instantly gets uh, put over as the, the villain. Right. And the face comes out and is like, it's so great to be here. And everybody cheers and applauds. Right. Um, it's kind of the same way. It's 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 another... It's a an easy way to make somebody your villain is if he shoots a kid. Yes. You know, yep. so right, right away you're establishing that he's bad. Right. There yep. might not be a reason for him to do it. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of the, the moustache twirling uh, yeah. villain. Yeah, you want to that's, show... The, there was another article I was reading too on maybe it's Cracked or something like that, which is sure. which is actually got, I'll give them a plug. There, it's a pretty funny website, Cracked dot com, yeah. and it was about the easiest ways to make your your hero a hero. Yeah. In a movie, and it was something about well, make him an American even if he's not. Yeah. <laughs> like the example they give is uh, Braveheart. Right. About like Mel Gibson, all oh, freedom and all that stuff. But it was like, well, if you actually read historically. None of that actually. That no. wasn't actually the motivation. And Braveheart is terribly inaccurate yes. as, as a history. Yes. I mean the whole the whole Battle of Sterling was the Battle of Sterling Bridge. Yes. And there's no bridge yeah. in the movie. <laughs> um, the other things is like like how to make a villain a villain is to, you know, the the cruelty for no reason just to make sure that oh he's bad. Yes. You know he's killing children. Well, why? I don't know. Just because he's bad. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That's or like he, Darth Vader. You know, he hates what you hate. He love you. You know. Yeah, yeah. That, the Darth Vader, that first sort of scene to establish that Darth Vader is the bad guy when, when he, he chokes when he, when he chokes that guy, guy out, right? Yeah, and that's you yeah, know like this is, that, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that, and and I think that um, I think that the Darth Vader story is a little bit deeper than you know the mustache twirling villain, but um, and I think I figured out what actually Darth Vader wants. What is what is it's just want? his mom? He wants his mommy. Yeah, because I mean the whole if you watch if you watch the prequels, that's kind of the whole. The whole premise is that he doesn't have his, this family is taken away right. from him, right. and all he wants is, is to have a family back. And right. then his mom gets killed by the Sand Raiders, right? Or the Sand People, and then uh, Padme, Raiders. the Tuscan Raiders, and then Padme dies in the in the in the third one, right? And no, that was, that was the worst <laughs> thing of that whole thing. So, what's the the best and or most inspiring role playing film or TV show for you? Um. I don't know that I've ever really taken any inspiration from a movie or TV show. Um, do you like Firefly? I've never actually watched Firefly. <laughs> I, I do like science fiction, but I never got into Firefly, even though... Uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Josh Whedon? Nathan Fillion oh, yeah, is like a local guy. And yeah, that's right. Yeah. To like really like him and different stuff. Um, yes. The one thing I can I can sort of point to or think of that I would like to see in a game. Uh, there's a show on, it's on City TV right now, I think it's going to be on CBC uh, next, for the next season, is Murdoch Mysteries. Right. Do you ever... I, I do know the uh, I do know the title, Murdoch Mysteries, I'm just trying to think what... It's, the, the... Uh, it's about a Victorian era oh, yeah. police detective yes. in Toronto about turn of the century. Yes, yeah. I think, I've, I think this turn of the next season, season six, will be 1900 because every year has been a new year. Right. Um, and it just seems that that would be an interesting game. Uh, it It's sort of like, I could see it... I know a system. The, I know a system that, that seems perfectly suited to that, yes. Um, but it does seem suited for that because there's not a lot of, not a lot of death. Right. And it's still, it's, it's a standard, well, not standard, but it's about, like, police for, he basically invents every modern forensic technique. Right. Uh, personally and by himself. Right. Um... 
there's a fairly good supporting cast. I don't know if you'd want to do it as a game right. to be where every player plays somebody from the show, but I think it would work if it was the same same themes because right. they've had what you've talked about in your in Victoria with the like the werewolf. Right. Where in in Ghosts of Albion it was an actual werewolf. Right. And in your game it was a you know, there was something else going on that yes. why yep. you know somebody was dressing up as a wolf or somebody was you know, using a a wolf's jaw or something sure. to, to maul people. It's sure. sort of like that, where you know, oh, this you know, the supernatural happens, but it's like no, it's just it's science. Right, yeah, it's sort of Sherlock Holmes reality. Yeah, for sure. more like that. Yeah. Who's your favorite villain, and why? That's one I thought about a lot. Um, I don't really have an answer because I can't really identify with the villains. I mean, even even when you like, even the basic thing about Hannibal Lecter is is the whole cannibalism is kind of kind of overweighs his. His sense of oh, absolutely. Uh, refinement, yes, oh, and his education. Sure, sure. But there's, there's, that's the whole thing about a good about a good villain, though, right? Is that that there are some things about them that you could you like and you've got to identify with them. You can't. I mean, you can you can find his actions abhorrent uh, because he's a because he's a cannibal, but he is. You know, he's got he has got redeeming features. You know, like he is smart and he's you know, he's erudite and all that type of stuff but that just, just because he's a cannibal doesn't necessarily mean that now, I'm not suggesting you can overlook you know being yeah. being a cannibal it's, you're like the uh, the parents when all those the when there was uh when they arrest some kid who's like a gang member for murder, it's like, oh, he was a good kid. Well, n- n- clearly not. <laughs> that's, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't think There are that, some things you can't overlook. No, that, that's right. But at the same time, you can uh, find certain aspects of the personality um, appealing. Right, and I th- and that's important for uh, at least. I think from the story point of view, maybe the Batman Rogues Gallery, like the Joker and Penguin and right. Riddler and all these other mm-hmm. ones, it it's it's it builds it up where you're getting something different from each one. Yes, it's not just the standard. You know, with Superman, it's pretty much Lex Luthor and Brainiac. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. Um, Come on, you're a big comics nerd. I'm really failing the the geek test here. <laughs> um, Green Lantern would be Sinestro. Right. He's kind of a one-track guy, but... Isn't Sinestro something you take to help you sleep at night? <laughs> That's, uh... <laughs> soon? I don't know. But yeah, and then, then Aquaman, you've got... Um, yeah. <laughs> I actually like... I, I really started to read... I started to actually picked up uh, most of the DC... When DC did their reboot off of the... Was the recommendation from uh, I Sell Comics? You know, uh, Ming Chan and yep. Mike. Mike Zapsic. Zapsic. Yeah, yeah, part of the Smallcast Network. Yeah. And I started reading uh, their, their. I listened to their reviews and I started picking up comics again. I'd never been into DC. You know, I was always Marvel. Right. With X Men, but I think with X Men, especially, there's the. I don't know the reliance on Magneto as their right. main villain, and he right. just seems. He's got an interesting backstory, but I don't think they do enough with it, or maybe it's just. Just the, those particular titles I read in the 90s where it just seemed, you know, he was just kind of like, oh, we have to kill humans. It's like, well, you know, there's this whole backstory that never yes. really gets right. sufficiently used, maybe. Yeah, yeah, sure. And I think, I don't know if Lex Luthor would be the good guy if he, if he had his own comic. I mean, he's done some, some horrible things. Right. But maybe that would be kind of like one of those things where winners would write the history books yeah. and we'll just ignore the... Uh, Ignore the yeah. uh, the bad things. Yeah, Jason and uh, Matt and Dave were talking about at the last episode, um, episode twenty seven. Um, the episode, the title of the episode is Red Sun. 
but Red Sun never gets talked about uh, during the episode. So for any of those, anybody that was wondering, Red Sun is the name of a, a series of comics where Superman is found by the Russians, by the Soviet yeah, he, Russia. He's, he's, I think it's he gets found on a collective farm in Ukraine or something like that. Right. And he gets you know raised up in the Soviet uh, right. communist values and things like mm. that, and he becomes the uh, the emblem of all things uh, Soviet. I guess. Right. Sure. And. In that, though, Lex Luthor is the hero, right? In that story? I'm not sure. Because they call on him to, to try and defeat Superman, I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah. I've, I've not read it, but I'd, I'd like to, so, um, so I can get a little bit more of the backstory. But that's I think that's the one that um, you could get a feeling I think, about. too, with Lex Luthor, it really depends on which Lex Luthor. Oh, yeah, Whether, for sure. Yeah, the, there are so many different ways that he's portrayed. Especially the movies, right? it just seems like he's just... It's always some kind of real estate scam. Yeah, yeah. He's always sort of a machine... He's always... His motivation is always greed. Yeah. It's not... Um, well, I wouldn't go so far as to say xenophobia, because that, that implies that, you know, that's, that's wrong. I mean, I think it's all right to hate an, invade, an invading alien menace, right? Yeah. Like, uh, Independence Day, you know, is based on xenophobia, right? And maybe these guys want to be our friends. No, they want to kill us, so we're going to Well, I mean, they, back, they do right? start blowing up uh, the White House and several other... That's right, buildings, yeah. So... Maybe we didn't get off on... Uh, <laughs> That's right, we got off on the wrong foot. So, nobody? nobody no particular villain? Maybe, um, one of the ones I kind of like is... Was it Bishop Whalering? I think is the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Pillars, Pillars of, the of the Earth. Yeah, yeah. Have you read the book? No, I haven't. I've, oh, I've, read, I've seen the movies a few times. But I've, I've got the book. I've got the book on the bookshelf over there, and you can take it away with oh, you. Oh, okay. It's yeah. it's yeah it's splendid. I love it. I think that a lot of writers at the time he wrote Pillars of the Earth were um, that was right about about the time when the Cold War had ended, and there was not really any clear okay. indication. I didn't, of I didn't who, think it was that old. Who the oh yeah it is. Well, the second book um, it's it's not really. I mean it's it's and still based around. Well yeah, World Without End is based around. Um, that same village, but and one and the main character is a descendant of, but there's not a lot of not a lot of crossover. But Pillars of the Earth, which I think is a much better book than than Well Within, although Well Within is great too, um, is you know I, I think he wrote a lot about Nazis and stuff, and then he sort of moved on towards uh, uh, espionage and, and modern espionage. But then when the, the Cold War came along and uh, sorry the, the Cold War finished, there was no clear enemy anymore. Like I'm not sure who the enemy is going to be for uh, for the remake of Top Gun because I mean, is it going to be China? Is it going to be who's it going to who's? Oh, it's not going to be. It, it wasn't going to be the Taliban. They don't have. It any... wasn't uh, Top Gun. They were remaking. It's Red Dawn. Oh right, that's yeah. the one they're remaking. And it's supposed to be. It was going to be the Chinese, right? But I think somebody was like, "Well, no, we can't really say that because we don't want to. We actually want to sell the movie to China." Yeah, yeah. So I think it's going to be North Korea, but I don't see how North <laughs> Korea can actually invade the US. Oh yeah, that's, that's interesting. How is North Korea going to? But but. And actually have the mirror, and actually have the U.S. on the ropes too, because that was the whole thing about yeah, yeah. Red Dawn, actually, right? I mean, yeah. it was a it was a credible threat. I don't think North Korea is yeah. going to well, be a, credible. I don't, I don't know. know. What are they going to do? Are they going to are they going to try and take Hawaii or something? And there's some yeah. reason why they can't scramble the jets from the mainland or get yeah. the I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's always like the I guess the Fallout uh, video game series was that the Chi- I think it is the Chinese. They never actually see the Russians. It's the Chinese that invade. I'd always like they had uh, there was the I think it's the original the original one was. So the Americans have to occupy Canada, right? To because they need access to the vast timber or something right. oil of Canada, right? And there's a part where uh, pacifying, you know, the friendly Canadians. There's a guy in armor, kind of like with his hand, and then there's an American shooting <laughs> him in the head, like, um, oh, it was during the last, the fall of Saigon or whatever, when right. the, when the uh, 
Viet Cong or the North Vietnamese were, were killing people in the streets and everything right. like that. Right. And so going back to Bishop Wallerian, what is it you like about uh, about him, at least from the television adaptation? It is, it is a really good adaptation. I, I always was excited at the thought of them making a movie, but I'm so pleased they turned into a miniseries because you can actually get a lot more, more, of, the, yeah, more yeah. of the story. Well, that's kind of like the whole idea with the whole Game of Thrones, how it's mm. such a big book and it would have been difficult right. to do as a movie. Right. Um, I think with Bishop Wallerian, it's the whole... His ability to manipulate people mm, yeah. and seem very reasonable yes. for his requests. Yeah, yeah. But the audience knows his whole thing, especially with the, uh, I don't know how many people have seen it or, or read the book, um, the initial part where he wants to build, I guess the current, is it the current Archbishop of Canterbury? At the start it is, yeah. He comes to him and says, you know, you'll never be Archbishop because your palace... Yes. You know, you need a bigger palace right, yeah. to make your diocese or archdiocese more yeah. impressive. So he's like, oh, okay. So he wants to hire this architect. Yeah. But this this no name in this no name prior yeah. wants to build a cathedral. Yeah. And he basically spends the whole thing trying to undermine this guy. Yeah. Who's and is like, oh, yeah. is your you know, and everything that he says about about um, I can't remember the character's name, the prior Philip. Philip, yeah, Brother Philip or whatever. Everything he says, oh, you know, you're just doing this to uh, elevate yourself above God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to be more humble. And prior Philip like, yes, yes, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. And it's like, that's you. Everything <laughs> that you've said about this guy could yeah. be said about you. Yeah, that's and right. he never, I don't know if he de- doesn't understand that yeah. or he just doesn't want to. Yeah, yeah. You get more of the backstory in, in the books. But yeah, and Ian McShane is excellent as, yeah. uh, well, as, uh, as Will Aaron Bygod. Or, um uh, was he in Deadwood? Or, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, he was. Yeah, Swearingen. that's right. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Sean Hayworth talks about him um, then as well. He's he's excellent, Ian McShane for sure. Um, so, if you could be a character uh, in a role playing game, what would it be and why? And it's not like uh, you can go and pick up the game and, and roll up a character. Like you suddenly find yourself in the game as as somebody in that game. I'm trying to think back to the ones we played. Which which world or which character I would most like to be. Um, probably not the masks of Carlisle or whatever that was, because I don't want to go insane. Um, <laughs> you guys barely got insane. Barely insane. Barely insane. <laughs> oh, uh, or maybe it'd be fun to be uh, Belgian Eddie Cunningham from Des Moines. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, or it doesn't have to even be one of the ones you've played before, just, just a, uh, a setting that you like the idea of being part of that you maybe you've read. Um... I'm kind of a coward... <laughs> so self-preservation self-preservation is, is key maybe I think it was was it Lenny Balsera who said maybe like an info merchant or something right yeah, yeah. the NPC that just happens to know something and, yeah. and he's really safe but right, yeah. I'd always be afraid that when I give you the information I'd die <laughs> um, you outlive your usefulness yeah, there, maybe, yeah maybe like a wizard somewhere where I can just sit and study magic and, right. and not have to worry unless some adventures come by right, that's right be and like I, Raistlin from Dragonlance. Uh, I've never Dragonlance? read any of those, right. so I don't know. Yeah, everybody wanted to. Uh, everybody liked the idea of being uh, of being Raistlin. Um, he's uh, he's got a twin brother who's a. It's kind of, he basically goes to the tower uh, the tower of uh, wizardry um, because in that particular. And I really like. It's one of the things that I liked about the Dragonlance. Uh, stories that they they actually they sort of played through the modules and then as they played through the modules somebody was writing the the story before it was before it was released and it gave a lot of uh, they developed a lot of backstory for the for the modules and one of the things that I liked about it was instead of just like rolling up a magic user look your magic here's your first level you actually go to the to the the wizard school and and there's a whole and, and anyway 
it's interesting, an interesting character. But a lot of people have chosen this idea of being uh, magic. Would you like to be able to be magic? Like be able to cast spells or control things with your mind? Maybe, yeah. It just as long as it keeps you out of danger. As long as it keeps you out of danger. <laughs> it seems like a lot. It'd be a lot. Uh, it'd be pretty convenient. I'm, I'm lazy as well as being a coward. So <laughs> some tele uh, telekinesis would be would be coming handy. Ideal, yeah. You'd be using it to uh, to like, shut the light off at night. And yeah. <laughs> using it for mundane purposes. Yeah. So, do you have any dice superstitions? Not at all. I'm pretty fidgety, as uh, well. You know, <laughs> with my dice. Um, Every time. I think it's it's more of an OCD thing, right. as well, where I just have to, and constantly like arranging them in a certain way, right. and, and stacking them up, and, right. That's that's more like an OCD thing. I don't really have any superstition. I know the whole. There are some dice that will roll differently than others because of the way they're made and, yes, and all yeah, that stuff. But, yeah, for sure. But they're just random number. Yeah, I mean generators. that's not that's not superstition. That's just you know like that's being observant and noticing that certain dice will roll high numbers because they've been they've been poorly machined. But but yeah, that's uh, yeah. I'd, I'd say that. But I don't think any of us, at least not that I'm aware of, any of us that play together regularly have any dice superstitions. But I mean, I bought the ones. Those there's a set of. Uh, D6s that I bought just because I liked the way they looked. I right. Guess. Blue and, and... But that's an, uh, that's an aesthetic. Copper. A lot of people talked about aesthetic before, right? But, um, yeah, I don't think there's any... Uh, I think that really qualifies as being a uh, superstition. So, what's your... I don't think I have any other superstitions at all, though. Right. Yeah, I think that if you're a superstitious person, then you may have dice superstitions. But another idea, and I don't know how you feel about this, that I've had is that part of the whole thing about role-playing games, or at least in a traditional sort of fantasy... Uh, role-playing games is that whole suspension of disbelief and this whole idea of a, a magic world and things that aren't controlled by reason you know that you've got to buy into that conceit so it doesn't it doesn't feel to me like there's that much of a of a step between you know setting aside your rational mind so that you can you know start uh, like participate or at least get to the point where you're you know willfully suspending disbelief to be a part of this game and then believing that there's some magic at play or some fate involved in, I mean, in the rolling of the dice. By that logic, it's like you can't enjoy Lord of the Rings without believing in hobbits. Huh. I don't know if that's actually... That's, <laughs> but it's... You, you're setting aside disbelief to enjoy a game that you know isn't real. Right. But this, the mechanics of, of dice are real. Right. I don't know. I don't really conflate the two. I can see what you're going for, but... Yeah. No lie. sale? No. <laughs> so what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example? Have you had much opportunity to try and... I have never pitched it to any... Well, there's one one, one of the guys at work, um, he asked me, you know, what are you doing this weekend? I was like, oh, I was writing for this this game campaign. He's like, oh, what? And we kind of talked about it for a, for a couple minutes. And he's right. like, like Dungeons & Dragons. He's like, yeah, but more, more story-based. And he's like, yeah. oh, okay. Because right. you get the people that have played Dungeons and Dragons before, or have played some kind of computer game before, mm. that understand yes. the concept, and it's a lot easier. Right. Um, and then again, you get the idea of well, if I explain it, he might want to play. Yes. And I wouldn't mind. He, you know, this guy seems seems pretty good. So yeah. if he said, you know, can I try it? I was like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I you know wouldn't just randomly invite strangers, but right. Sure. Well, feel free. I mean, I think we're, we're probably down a player at the moment, for, at least consistently. So, yeah. by all means, go out and, and recruit people. Some people. Yeah, I've never felt any compunction or any... Uh, I know people are like, oh, we don't want to say Dungeons & Dragons because it's uh, we're all hipsters now and we can't reference something that, is, right. that isn't cool. Right. I think hip... I don't know. I don't want to get... Well, I'll get into this. Um, the whole idea of the hipsters behind the new wave of, of the new emergence, the renaissance of gaming. Right. Um, 
It just seems like those are the guys that just don't want to say D and D because it's not it's not cool enough or something. Right. Right. Um, it is a. I think I'm going to take it back for the nerds. <laughs> it's a nerdy, geeky hobby. Right. And okay. either embrace it or go away. Right. Um, I know the. That's some fighting talk, Clint. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> well. I don't know what more is there to say. Um, oh, there's plenty more going to say. <laughs> the whole hipsters ruin everything. Right. Um, Expand. Expand on this idea. <laughs> I think I painted myself to corner. I can't say anything else. Um, <laughs> do you mean that um, it's uh, disingenuous to disown... Uh, Dungeons and Dungeons and Dragons as a as a the basis of the uh, of the hobby or not pay it due respect. I don't know because I don't really like Dungeons and Dragons that much. Right. Um, but you recognise that it. I think it, yeah, it, it is the that's where most people started. That's what most people still play. Right. Um, I get the idea, and I love. I I've never played. I I just got Fiasco. I'd like to try it. Right. And um, same with Burning Wheel. Not not so much Burning Wheel, but. Maybe the um, using elements of it, like I, I really like the story elements and kind of the buy-in from players. Yes, um, but I think there is definitely that whole hipster element of it. Is we don't want to acknowledge right. that most people that play it are the nerds. Right. It's like we're still I'll go back to high school. It's the clicks. It's we want to do something, but we don't want to associate with the people that like it. Right. Kind of thing. Right. So, it's Dungeons and Dragons is uncool. I'm cool, but I like role playing, so I have to have a go at Dungeons and Dragons in order to be able to still be cool and still get to role play. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. All right. Is that are you rescued now? I think you're safe now. I don't, I don't hate mail. Care. I, I don't. There'll be any hate mail. I don't know. That, okay. was, that was my goal coming in was to have. Uh, the most hate mail generated for an episode. I don't know. I think you're going to be hard pressed to uh, beat Ryan Macklin, who said, "Well, you'll, you'll, you shall find out in due course." Um, so, adding up to a hundred, assign the points to reflect the relative importance of system, GM, and players. I will go thirty-three and a third for each one. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll puss out. Um, no, there's nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a I think, I think it is because a lot of people have said, "Oh, fifty percent for GM, forty percent for players, and ten percent for the system." Because you know you can just use any system or use uh, a really light yep. rules, but the light rules are still rules. Yeah, you've still got to have some kind of internal consistency. If there's a different result depending on what you do each time you do it, then that really ruins a game. Ladies and gentlemen, Clint Johnson. That's it for episode 28 of Penny Red. Once again, apologies for the lack of the Ryan Macklin interview. I do promise that the episode has been edited and is waiting to go. As soon as Ryan's back from Gen Con and, and Pax is going to give it a, a once-over to check he's satisfied that it's inflammatory enough, and uh, then it will be posted. So fingers crossed once again for, uh, for next week for that episode. For anybody interested in buying Victoria, if you go to hazardgaming.com and click on the Buy Victoria link, you'll be taken to a page where you can buy a signed and numbered copy of the first printing, first edition. You can also get the PDF from DriveThruRPG or RPG Now. But for listeners of Penny Red, if you go to the Buy Victoria link and then scroll down on the right-hand side till you're across from the field for entering your email address to, to buy a PDF, you can get it for $9.99 but just $6.99. 
So until next week, keep talking the walk. <laughs>